Welcome to Urban Foundry. All opinions expressed by Andrew Urban, Paige O'Neill, and our castmates are solely our own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Collier's International, Inc. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Collier's International may maintain positions in the properties discussed in this podcast. Welcome back to the Urban Foundry podcast, your go-to source for urban real estate news and conversations. I'm Andrew Urban. And I'm Paige O'Neill, and we will be your co-hosts as we explore the future of downtown real estate. This This is Urban Urban Foundry. Foundry. Welcome back to Urban Foundry. You're here with Andrew Urban and Paige O'Neill. We have an awesome lineup today. We are going back back or actually forward to the future to 2035. And we've brought in two heavy hitters in economic development to come talk about predictions of the future. One is a guest that many of you already know, Jacob Everett from Corsa Strategies, principal and founder. Welcome back to the podcast. Great to be here. First repeat guest we First have. Repeat First repeat guest. No pressure. That's a badge of honor. <laughs> that is. And we have Steve Brunson, managing director, credits and incentives from DMA. Steve, Welcome to the podcast. Welcome to Urban Foundry. Thanks for having me. And it's Important. funny. So we're doing this little face-off today. You guys used to work together for a couple of years. It's Jacob good. says three. A wonderful three years together. Yeah, he side learned. by so side. This is kind of a reunion a lot. of he sorts. <laughs> I did learn a lot. I did. No, we're, we're good friends and, and we're, we're good colleagues. And yeah. Well, good. We live in the same world, really, professionally. That's right. That's so, right. Yeah. It doesn't, doesn't stop. We're all, we're all connected. And so today, you know, we were talking a little bit before the show about what the future in 2035 looks like for economic development. Obviously, you both work on behalf, typically, of private companies or other do consulting for public organizations. But in general, you're working on behalf of, we'll say, a company looking at a major expansion, et cetera, and negotiating those packages. So you understand these tools really well. You have to explain them to people that don't live in this world and understand where the puck is going and relates to these things because it has a major impact on some of the companies, right? And so, you know, we're seeing a lot of change and disruption in our world. And so part of today is really kind of sitting there and trying to make some predictions for the future. So you guys feel comfortable? Absolutely. Ready to go? Let's go. Let's do All it. All right. First topic. We're going to throw it out I wish there. we had a dun-dun-dun. Oh, I know. <laughs> we only have applause, womp, 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 creepy drums, crickets, and chimes. So that's all we have for <laughs> The crickets sounds, might come in so handy. You know, crickets in case. <laughs> <laughs> Paige, if you could bore I know. us that for us, okay? <laughs> First one. All right. We're seeing a lot of new industries come to various states. Indiana has been one of those. Electric vehicles semiconductors, right? These are all 21st century type industries. And the, the the question I have, and this really came from reading an article yesterday in the Wall Street Journal, it talked about Ford and Ford's struggles to continue to produce combustion vehicles at the same time, divert capital into R&D for EVs and how it's creating these parallel supply chains that are inefficient, that their company isn't structured in the right way to essentially innovate in a rapid fashion to keep up with Tesla, Lucid, and all these EV startups that don't have to worry about the combustion engine. But as I was thinking about this conversation today, I thought, you know, there's a lot of communities in the state of Indiana, as well as across the country that are heavily invested as a community, as a, as a local economy, into some of these what we would call 20th century jobs. At some point, right, some of these businesses are going to be what I call wagon wheel businesses. Great business to be in 1875, 25 years later, not the greatest business to be in. And those jobs will eventually draw down and exit. How can, these comp- you know, how can economic developers work with their communities to really start to incentivize and address what might be a coming jobs cliff for some of these communities. And we've seen it, right? You guys, we've all been around through the Great Recession. In my old jobs, we closed a lot of factories across the country. And you know, the truth was the economic fallout for some of these places. Some of these cities have never recovered, right? And we can all probably think of them you know, off the top of our heads. How do communities, economic developers, leaders avoid that pitfall that comes with innovation and growth? Floor is yours, gentlemen. Who wants to go first? I'll jump in. Okay. Yeah, I think it's a it's a great question, Andrew. And I, I've got an example right now. I actually had a call with, with a client this morning, tier one supplier selling right now. All they do is sell into big auto right across the street, combustion. The program lasts another two years. 
can't give more specifics without giving away yeah, who right. it might be. But but the question we ask is, what's the future of this after two years? And they say, well, it depends on what the future of the plant across the street is. And we don't know yet. And and that, I think, is is the challenge because as you see this shift to EV, is EV going to land in the same places? In, in many cases, no. So what can communities do? I think there's two sides to that. The first side is they, they've got to be out aggressively pursuing the 21st century projects. If you can get the 21st century projects, the 21st century jobs will be there. And and yes, is there a transition in some cases between the work being done on, on the combustion facilities and, and the newer facilities? Yes, but a lot of it is not that different. You talk right. body work. Yeah. You talk a lot of the components that go into a vehicle are not dramatically changing. So going out and winning those future projects, you have a workforce and you say, right. is that workforce ready for this? They're as ready as a workforce who hasn't had any history in that. Correct. So I think going out there and, and not resting on, hey, we have this, it's always going to be here, but understanding that companies now, you use an example of Ford or whoever the company may right. be, they're going to be looking at this from a site selection standpoint and saying, where's the best place for us to be? Yeah. So from a community standpoint, you need to look at that, understand that's competitive, understand you're not necessarily just getting the next version of this vehicle because it was here before, but you need to be aggressively positioning your community, aggressively positioning your workforce uh, to win those projects. And it's not an issue of retention, right? During the Great Recession, there was a lot of retention. I worked on a lot of those deals on as on the corporate side, right? When we were thinking about closing, but we were on the fence and, hey, what kind of retention can we get, right? In some cases, these industries are just, like you said, in two years, we don't know. We're making this part that goes on this type of engine, and it's a combustion engine. If they don't make that engine anymore, it's it's not a matter of, hey, if you give us a little bit of money, we can hang on for a little bit longer, and maybe the economy turns around. It's going, oh, no, we're not making this product anymore. It's you know it's a wagon wheel, essentially, right? Jacob, what do you think? Yeah, I have two comments. Uh, the first is you mentioned an employment cliff, and I think a lot of, a lot of people get concerned and, and frankly, scared about automation and and what is as these jobs evolve like what's going to happen right i did some research on that last year and i actually everything i reviewed i think is actually really really positive right so i think are certain communities states regions going to have significant challenges for sure they are as as these evolutions that you and steve were just talking about occur but overall all the research and really when you look at historically think about major shifts right the industrial revolution all that kind of stuff there really is not evidence out there that says this change is going to be disastrous right it actually all the evidence and all the research points to more opportunity being created overall than is taken away, right? In terms of jobs and investment and ship, you know, the, the shifting of industry. So overall, as we look at, at across the country and, and globally, you know, as a whole, it really creates more opportunity than, than, than loss when you think about jobs and investment. So I think I just caution people not to be overly negative about it because yeah. it truly represents opportunity. But what you guys were talking about is you have to be strategic, right? So my second point is how communities react and prepare for this really has to start with understanding what these new industries are, right? So most communities and regions and states have, you know, what they call target industries, right? They try to figure out what industries make sense for us, right? What are we actually going to be successful in attracting, retaining, growing from an industry perspective? And so I remember 15 years ago, you know, there was a lot of talk about advanced materials, right? Yep. Advanced materials are new and nobody really knew what it meant. And it was a big deal. And <laughs> and now kind of you think about the economy as a whole and really, every part of the country has roots and ties to advanced materials, right? So yeah. it's trying to figure out what is next. And so we all know, you know, semiconductors and, and electric vehicles and, and even batteries themselves, right? yeah. not just for vehicles, but for all kinds of, uh, you know, uses. So understanding who you are, it goes back to some of the basics of economic development, right? Understanding who you are to Steve's point, understanding what labor you have, you know, what skill sets you have, how those can adapt to the future and be, and being prepared for that. So, you know, really continuing to understand, seek out that understanding. You got to, you got to talk to industry and understand where things are headed so you can prepare. Cause to your point, Andrew, assuming that these 20, 20th century industries are going to carry you the next 10, 15 years, it's just, you can't, you can't bank on that cause it's not going to happen. And one thing that kind of jogged a thought for me, and I'm curious to see how you guys react. I mean, imagine a project for a million square foot facility, huge capital spend, we'll say it's 150 million but it's going to employ 20 people because of automation. 
And these facilities, I've seen them in person. You know, some, some of them are overseas. Some of them are here where you have this huge facility that's just full of steel and robots and conveyors. And there's just a few people that need to monitor the machines and make sure that the robot's not screwing anything up or there's not a breakdown. And that's it, right? So it's a big project, but the long-term number of jobs is pretty small in comparison to the amount of capital spend. I mean, do you think a lot of communities are prepared with the tools to compete for a project like that that doesn't fit the traditional box because of shifts? I don't think they are. I don't think that shift has happened yet. And I think there's still concern, kind of what you touched on earlier, Andrew, about this jobs cliff. I think there's still a lot of focus on job creation. I think there's another dynamic that that we can touch on here coming along with this is you're actually seeing, and there's concern both short, medium, and long-term about there not being enough labor. Obviously, short-term, we know right. that's an issue. Yeah, right. But it's a concern medium and long-term, too, in the majority of industrialized nations. Yeah. I mean, the number of children we're having in the it's U.S. is not sufficient to replace our workforce. You know, and that could get more political in talking about immigration, being able to do yeah, that. Right. But the, the medium and long-term there's still a lot of concern about not having enough workforce. Yeah, I do think we're going to see a dramatic shift in, in what types of operations require workforce. I think we're going to have different skill sets that are required, but I think it goes back to Jacob's point. I think there's a lot of fear, but I think those two dynamics to some extent can offset. I, I think we've not been in a place like this. We've always been focused on as, as the economy grows, we need more workers, we need more workers. And now we're concerned that we're not going to have more workers but we have this other dynamic mm-hmm. of automation, of artificial intelligence, of, of things that are going to change the nature of the jobs that people are going to do. Uh, and I don't think we have – we don't have answers for how those are going to balance out yet. But I do think I do think there's some different forces at work there. To go back to your question on the communities, I don't think a lot of communities know how to handle jobless or low-job investment. They don't know how to value it because a lot of their traditional – metrics are based on job creation. I think metrics need to shift toward wage increase. I think what metrics need to shift toward what type of jobs are needed and how is it improving the lives of the people that are already in our community? Because again, fighting over increased workforce, over increased number of jobs, when you already have a lot of employers in your communities who can't fill jobs, mm-hmm. why are you doing it? Yeah, why are we creating why, why are you Why are you fighting over more jobs when you've got good employers who can't fill positions now. So I do think there's going to have to be a shift. I think it's happening, but I think economic development changes, especially as they go into tools for economic development, they happen slowly. A lot of times they they happen, there's a change that happens and the tools happen legislatively two or three years later. They learn how to implement them two or three years later. So I think there's a lag, but I do think that communities that can get on top of that with the existing tools and then states that can look forward and figure out, okay, how do we value projects now? How do we value what they bring economically to the community in terms of more than just jobs, but tax revenue, secondary, tertiary benefits of the community, and then bringing tools to bear that meet those, I think are going to be ahead of the game. I, again, have have two thoughts uh, that, that align with what Steve was saying. And, and the first is around the automation issue. I, I agree with what Steve was saying in that instead of being scared of or uh, intimidated by automation and all the changes it's going to bring about, the reality is it's necessary and we actually need to embrace it, right? Because the data I'm, I look at and the people that I, you know, read and hear comment on, you know, the labor shortage is, you know, to Steve's point, it's not going away. It's not going away in the short term. And I don't see anything out there that tells us it's going to go away in the medium or long term no. either, right? So the reality is instead of being scared of automation, we need to embrace it as, frankly, a solution that without we would really be in bad shape as mm-hmm. a global society because right. we're not going to be able to sustain the necessary output without automation, right? Um, and then back to the incentive question, uh, which you guys were talking about, to me, it's, it's you really do get, see, you know, community leaders, whether they're mayors or governors or whoever, really get hung up on, you know, the job thing because that's the way economic development has been defined for decades, right? Yeah. And there will continue to be, I think there will continue to be, you know, programs and, and, you know, incentive tools that are really geared towards the traditional, you know, expansion of, of human capital. Right. And I think that will remain, but what I would challenge states and and communities to think about is what are we trying to achieve, you know, here, because economic development doesn't have one definition, right? So creating good, good paying job opportunities in the community is, is a great goal, right? And you should, you should pursue that. Right. But 
the project you described, $150 million of, of capital investment, just a handful of jobs, right? So you're not going to really stand in front of City Hall and right. you know, really, <laughs> really scream about 20 jobs, right? Mm-hmm. But what if that is going to generate a lot of new tax revenue and that tax revenue can be used to improve your libraries or improve your park right, system right, or, big picture. you know, improve, t- t- Steve said it, improve the quality of the life for the people that live there, whether it's in your city or your state. Right. So I think it's being creative and being more flexible in, you know, the intellectual prism that you view incentives through, right. Because you should have tools that accomplish different things in your community rather than it just being a tool that does one thing only, mm-hmm. which traditionally has been jobs. So, yeah, I, I totally agree. It's it's challenging to Steve's point. It's going to be a slow evolution because these policies don't change overnight. But it really is going to take the people that think more holistically about their communities and what they're trying to achieve. You know, th- those people are going to be leading the charge on this, you know, to, to break away from kind of the old mold. Right. And, and part of the way I think about it, too, is the ROI that you talked about, right? Quality of place, improving the community and being able to articulate that to their constituents in a different way where historically you say, well, we're going to create 2000 jobs and like, Oh my God, 2000 jobs. That's huge. And you could tie certain metrics to that. I know in the auto industry, typically we, we used a ratio of one to five. So for every one job we created, there was an impact on five other people in the community directly. That could be from your local baker to a realtor to all these other people that kind of serve, you know, people in a growing community. And I think what you're mentioning is like, hey, we're going to create all this other tax revenue, right? Which is still good. And this is how we're going to put it back to use. And it'll become kind of this virtuous cycle of attracting that. So for this project, it may not have a ton of jobs, but it's going to enable other goals that our community has. I feel like that sometimes is not being fully articulated sometimes when these projects are being heard in front of councils. I think people like Jacob and I need to be, we need to get better at our jobs. <laughs> right? and, and I do think if you look at programs, they focus on direct jobs. Right. But like you said, the, the other impacts, having that, that factory you talked about with 20 jobs, how, what's the impact of that? You talked about taxes. Okay. Taxes create opportunity. They create infrastructure, which causes people to come and live and improves quality of place where you are, which creates additional service jobs and other jobs in the community. That particular facility might also have suppliers that now have to pop up all around them. Those suppliers may not, based on scale, may not be able to automate. So those 20 jobs, what's the multiplier effect on those? And that the multiplier has always been something that's been in our business. It's never really been well baked into how incentives work. Mm-hmm. Um, right. I think there could be some improvement on that. I also think that from a site selection standpoint, when you're talking about you know, what a project's going to do for a community, having greater focus on that multiplier effect, the multiplier effect of the jobs, the multiplier effect of the investment, what that means to the community. I think that's that's something that Communities are always going to struggle a little bit with that. Yeah. And a lot of it is just they don't have the time or the resources to go out and constantly be modeling these things. Right. Right. So so as companies come in and they want to sell a community and have a, at the same time have a community sell them on the community, they need to be able to explain why our project is impactful to your community. I think that's that's something where we're always used to communities being able to say, here's here's why our community is impactful to your project. But I think it's also incumbent upon the business that's looking at a community to say, okay, this isn't what you traditionally are expecting to see, but but let's talk about what the impact on the community is going to be. Mm-hmm. Most of my clients, yeah, we're in there negotiating incentives in order to make a project happen, but almost always they're saying, hey, part of this is at the end of the day, if we choose a location, mm-hmm. we want to be a good community partner. Of course. We want this to work for the community because that's where we're going to operate for 10, 15, 20, 30 years. This is where our people are going to live. Yeah. So I, I think that partnership you know, can deepen in terms of having that conversation of how communities affect pro- programs and projects and how projects affect communities and looking more deeply than, than just the first layer of direct jobs. You know, the other thing I would add is you know, economic development, public policy should not be static, right? And yeah. so the conversation we're having here about how these programs need to evolve should not just be driven by, you know, industry change or automation or, or anything like that. It, your policy needs to be reactive and, and, and address the situation that you're in, right? So mm-hmm. if if we were, were to rewind to 2007, 2008, you know, and, and you're a, someone who influences economic development policy, you should be, you should at that time be huge you know, hugely interested in job creation, right? Because yeah. unemployment is really high and the, the best thing you could do for, for 
you know, the people you represent is, is try to help make sure they have access to employment opportunities. Well, that's not the world we live in today, right? We've, we've just spent the last 15 minutes talking about <laughs> yeah. how there's not enough labor, yeah, right? There's so, unlimited opportunities for a limited number of people. Right. Unemployment, the, the rate is actually too low right now. Yeah. It, it's actually structural, structural, her, her, structural stru- problem, structural yeah. problem, right? So, so yeah, you know, what we're sitting here today talking about five years from now, you know, you would need to have a different perspective because you got to be responsive to what you're trying to accomplish. Right. And that goes back to, you know, my comments about, you know, you got to expand that definition beyond just jobs. It's what are you trying to achieve within your state or your community across the board, you know, from a fiscal perspective, from a quality of life perspective, from a you know health and, and safety perspective, all those kind of things can be relevant to how are we approaching economic development and how we're using our tools. And thinking forward, right, and, and we're talking a little bit about the reactive here, but let's think about proactive. You know, 2035, we'll call that, you know, roughly what? It's 2023, so that's 12 years in the future. That's far enough out, but also close enough that we can kind of see where the puck is going on a lot of this. Talk to me about what communities need to do to be more proactive as it relates to infrastructure, as it relates to kind of community things that are going to be essential for these new industries, right? Things like clean power, energy, sustainability. A lot of these industries, we're talking about heavy power use. We're also talking about materials that are relatively new. And in some cases, if we talk about battery manufacturing, you know, they're not always necessarily the most environmentally friendly you know, outputs and raw and waste that comes out of those production processes. We've certainly gotten better from the 1930s using lead batteries, but naturally, right. There's some, some, some nasty chemicals there. What, what do communities need to do to get infrastructure up to snuff? You know, we've talked about nationally infrastructure crises. You're seeing that with major airports, roadways, bridges, right? Those are some of the things that we think about, but also other types of infrastructure assets, whether that be power utilities, water, things like that. What do communities need to be thinking about today to set them up for their success in, in 12 years' time? From a from a consumer perspective, I had a conversation recently with some folks that are involved here and in, in trying to figure out how to deploy, you know, the federal dollars that are being spread around the country to electrify, you know, charging stations, right, around, mm-hmm. around the country, right? So as these electric vehicles come online, they can actually, you know, transverse the country by having access to places to charge. And so there's going to be billions of dollars put into that across the country. And I think it's it, it's going to be an interesting to see how that all that unfolds. And for me, it's, it's interesting that we're taking – a new approach and we're really kind of putting dots on the map in a unique way around this. At least that's what it seems like is going to happen, but what's after EVs, right? What's, what's next after that, right? We don't want to have to rebuild infrastructure time and time again, just because the technology changes. Right. So I think that's going to be a challenge for not just state and local governments, but the federal government to try to figure out how do we leverage the money we're spending now for the next iteration of electric, or I know, I mean, Hydrogen being discussed, yeah. right? So, like, we don't want to have to rebuild a network every time the the, the personal vehicle changes and, and, and morphs into whatever's next, right? So, to, to me, that's that's an interesting dynamic, and I don't know where that's going to land. <laughs> what say you? I mean, I'm stumped. Yeah, that was uh, yeah. I, I going back to the the larger infrastructure question. I think you hit on you know something. It's it's. I think this is a big question around a lot of states. And it's a big question federally, and it's a big question locally. I think one big challenge is, is coordination among those levels and where do funds go. And in infrastructure, in terms of, you know, especially talk electricity, generation infrastructure is moving to become more rural, right? Where right. do wind and solar go? They don't, they don't go in the cities, you know, put them on rooftops, but that's not, that's not utility scale. They're going rural. Right. Um, but that energy is needed in areas with workforce. So how do you get it from the rural to the urban and how do you get them aligned? I'm doing a lot of work right now with utility developers, green energy developers. And what's interesting is the benefits of this and, and, and the people are moving to metro areas, the rural communities, they don't always want it. Yeah, that's There's right. Remonstration against it. So where does it go and how do you get partnership and how do you, how do you build community partnership and some, some joint vision so that that can happen? I think that's a challenge. I think it's something, you know, I don't see a lot of coordinated. I see a lot of committees at the state level. Mm -hmm. I see a lot of commissions. I don't see a lot of answers to those questions. And I continue to see a lot of pushback against a lot of these projects. And ultimately, a lot of them do happen because financially, you know, there's enough dollars in those projects from the federal government. There's enough, enough there to make it worth the while. If you put these 
generation facilities, whether it's solar or wind, you put them over a large rural area, they don't tax the other infrastructure there very much. So if they generate some tax and they don't tax the infrastructure, they can be good for those communities. But but I think in terms of coordination, I still see a lack of coordination in terms of overall, how are we doing this? Um, it's, it's, it's different than building the interstate system years ago. Right. Yeah. You had federal government leadership around. Here's exactly what's kind of top down in was, that case. Right. It was top down. Now we have a lot of money flowing from top down. But how that money is implemented, you know, is 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 very varied. I mean, it's flowing into private entities. These private entities are, are building based on what the utility companies are telling them they need. But but in terms of how it impacts communities, it, it, it gets dumped on the communities and the communities don't necessarily know exactly, do they want it? How does it impact them? How does it impact the future of their community? I think these are all questions that we don't have a coordinated way of answering them right now. I think you also have to think about the workforce in 2035. Yeah. I mean, all of us, I don't, I'm assuming, will be the old people in the room. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, guys. Yeah, um, that's true. But the workforce is going to be a community who's very vocal about the environmental aspects of that's true. everything inclusivity. So what does that look like for them? Yeah. Let's talk about the ability to meet those kind of demands, right? Right. Let's talk about that. But let me first comment on some of Steve's thoughts on, you know, how these projects are being developed, where they're being developed. I'm doing some work in that space too. And it is very challenging. Again, there's a lot of, there's unfortunately a lot of pushback um, in some of these communities that, that are kind of resisting having these kind of projects go in other areas. And one comment I found interesting is, you know, why don't we just build these, these big solar and wind, you know, arrays out in the desert, right? We've got tons of empty space in this country. Why don't we put it out there? And, and again, that comes back to structural issues, right? You can't, there's nowhere to connect to the grid. Doesn't it's, it's, it's a doesn't desert. Mean, yeah. Right. There's nothing out there. The grid's not out there. Right. <laughs> so how are you going to get that power from, you know, a Southwest desert, you know, to the East the Eastern seaboard, right? I mean, you're not right. It physically is not going to happen. So there really are some structural issues that as a country, we're going to have to work through um, in, in getting these projects built, located and built somewhere. Right. And because of where the grids exist, the multiple grids in the country, you know, there are lots of places and, and, and certainly where we all live in the Midwest, there are really, really good locations for these. And as a country um, it's, it's where, the direction we're headed, but we've got to get, we've got to get things coordinated to the point where these projects can move forward. And, and that leads us to the question of, you know, how are we going to meet all this future demand, right? The current and future demand. And, and the reality is there's so much demand coming from corporations. Some of that's driven by kind of their own preferences, but others driven to your point page by kind of consumer demand and what consumers want to see in the products they buy. Right. And, and there is a massive shortage today and can project it to continue, right? Uh, the, the demand is far outstripping what what can be provided, right? Essentially, these this power generation from wind and solar gets fed into the grid, right? And so ultimately, you're looking at the mix of your grid, right? Mm-hmm. And you've got more and more companies wanting to buy this green energy off the grid, and there's just not enough of it to go around. And, and that's going to be a big problem you know, into the future. And I, I think that problem is going to challenge where companies choose to locate. I, I think there is... I think there is a solution. I don't know if the solution is, is politically, uh, <laughs> if you can sell it politically though. But I mean, if you look at the efficiency of wind and solar, you look at the amount of power we can create from those, you look at the desire to take fossil fuels offline. I mean, the, the route that solves all of that in mm-hmm. terms of cost is is declaring nuclear green. Yeah, If we can get there, mm-hmm. but that's, that's a, yeah. that is a, that is a practical potential solution, right. but, but politically, the the perception of nuclear. I mean, we, we're not oh, yeah. we're not building nuclear. No, we haven't right built now. in we thirty years. I think it's it's time. been a very long time. It's been a long time, and there's movement over in Europe. I mean, you started the, the, yeah. the Ukraine Russia conflict where they started talking about nuclear again as as green, and and nuclear can be absent disaster. Right, can be a lot cleaner. Correct. The problem is the problem is disaster. Yeah, right? and, and and can we sub, can we mitigate disaster to the point where where there's a comfort level around that. But in terms of return on investment, in terms of looking at how much electricity we're going to need to power, you know, EV mobility all across the country, you know, that's a solution that's out there. There are people pushing it. I just don't think politically it's it's viable right now. And I don't know if it'll ever get there. Do you think just the way you're talking about how this federal dollars are flowing and they're kind of flowing down to these individual states and entities? I mean, do you think this kind of creates a potentially in the United States, we have 50 states? 
inevitably, if it's being left up to that level to determine and organize and collaborate and kind of some of the structural function, you know, dysfunction that you're talking about, does it become an arms race at some point where the states that are doing it well see all this economic benefit and opportunity in the states that don't figure it out and are late to the game and, and squander opportunities? Are they going to be left out? 12 years in the future when a big site selection project comes up and they're looking and going, all right, we're looking at these three states. These two got their act together 12, 15 years ago and they have what we need. And there's this one state, we really like it and they have great labor and we love the cost. And, but guess what? They're not, they're not hitting these goals at all. They're no, they're nowhere close. And it's going to create this inequalities of sorts of someone that was well run future thinking 12 years ago, did the right things, made things happen. So they were positioned for the future. And there's going to be states that squander the opportunity and they're going to get passed over. Right. I think that's a big question. And I think, I think it's hard to look forward and know, because I do think, you know, states that are moving more aggressively and, and honestly, states aren't driving a lot of this development. A lot of this is coming from federal level dollars through investment tax credit and production tax credit dollars. I mean, that's that tax equity is funding these green energy, green energy development projects. That's where it's coming from. It's available wherever your project is. If your project meets certain criteria and you're talking 30 to 35% a lot of times of the equity into these projects, that's the only way these projects are competitive right now from a price perspective. So I think it's a challenge because if you look at states that are maybe have more of these projects or requiring more of their energy to come from, you're, come from you know renewable solutions, you're already seeing there's challenges there in terms of sustainability and consistency of of their grid. So you you don't have the same consistency with solar. What happens when it gets cloudy? What happens when the wind doesn't blow? I mean, you've seen challenges already, stresses on these grids. So when you have communities that are trying to put these online while trying to pull, you know, decommission traditional generation facilities, there's also risks that go with that. And I think you have states looking at that and, and, and maybe being a little slower to that and saying, well, maybe our play is is having more consistency, more reliability. I don't know what the answer is. I think it's it's going to be there's going to be a lot of decisions made on the fly over time in terms <laughs> of how we want to do this and there's going to be probably some reactivity when you see issues with grids. You, there's going to be reactivity, there's going to be some that are that are slower to respond, but you know, I don't know that there's a great answer to that. I think the challenge is wanting to go to renewable but learning how to deal with the challenges that come from renewable. And on the corporate side, you've got, you're going to have large projects that are going to want a certain percent of their energy to come from renewable sources. And then yeah. that percentage is going to continue to go up. You know what they're also going to want? Reliable energy. Correct. Right? So Correct. that's that's the holy grail is how do you do both? Yeah. And if I had that answer, I probably wouldn't be sitting here. Yeah. Right. Well, hey, you, yeah. you have it. It's called nuclear. <laughs> None of us are nuclear scientists. <laughs> yeah. I should not be put around a nuclear yeah. reactor. We we just need we just need cold fusion to get figured out here yeah. in the next what wow. three four five years. Yeah. I mean that is, that is the ticket. Some right? smart people need to get on that. I don't know. Yeah. I don't seriously. Know what, I don't know what they've been doing with their time. <laughs> cold fusion sounds like a good they, nitro they cold brew uh, brand <laughs> or something like that. I might be able to pull off the nitro cold brew, but you know you know the other big issue is. Steve's right. You know, a lot of the, 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 the ability to finance these projects is coming from the federal level. But w- where the rub is, is that a lot of these decisions about where these projects can and cannot locate is, is coming down to the local level, right? So yeah. in, in some states, you've got a heavy influence on, you know, at the state level and, and that, that has authority to cite these projects, right? But in many locations, including where we all live here in Indiana, it's really driven by local local authorities, right? Zoning, permitting, all that kind of stuff was a local decision. And it, it's a difficult decision. I under, I understand that, but it's really challenging for these developers who find, you know, from from just a geographic and infrastructure structure location, like this is the spot on the map where this stuff needs to go, right? And it happens to be in communities that are really resistant to that. So that it's evolution funny, over it? time, it, it's, it's really interesting. It's very challenging. I think you know, much this country, kind of the way our, our, our country has developed, local control is a really important thing, right? And and in by and large, I think most people support local control. Like communities should be able right. to figure out for themselves, you know, what they want, how they want to structure, you know, their zoning and their policies and all that. But when you step back, you know, from a holistic perspective, if this is where the country and the world's trying to go is to this this green energy sources, that local control is actually probably one of the biggest 
challenges right now that exist uh, in in getting these projects because there's dozens and dozens of them in the in the pipeline right across multiple states, mm-hmm. but they're just really being slowed down if not stopped completely um, due to some local decision making. Yeah, and what what is their resistance to it? Is it you know, what what's is it just they don't understand? Is it that they just don't believe that? It's across the board coming and it's across the board. It's some of it, you know, I would consider to be kind of rational and reasonable kind of debate. Sure. Other, it really gets into kind of some of the the, kind of the crazy stigma around it, the, the the internet based, you know, arguments about health and and (laughs) whatever. Right. So, so there's aesthetic discussions, right. But I, I'm, you know, I don't want to live across from, I don't want to look at that every day. There's, right. Right. There's, normal. there's unfounded claims about health impacts and soil and water and stuff that, you know, there's no evidence of, but yeah, it's if, out if there. It's becomes, clickbait yeah, out there yeah, on like, yeah, whatever right, right, forum. Right. right. So, and then now all of a sudden you've got county commissioners, county council people, area planning people trying to navigate, you know, the economic benefits of this with significant pushback in their community. And it's a really difficult situation, right? I have my own personal opinions about yeah. it, but at the end of the day, I respect that I respect that local control is important and I respect that it's a difficult process to work through. I think the facts bear out that these projects overall are net positive. I think, you know, they can contribute to the communities and and they can contribute to the goals our society has basically set that we want to move to green energy. But that doesn't mean the process is easy. Yeah. And what's interesting, I'm reading a book right now called Power Failure, The Fall of an American Icon. And it's about the story and really relatively recent history of General Electric. But the first few chapters go into the origin of General Electric at, under Thomas Edison, right? And a lot of people go, okay, great. What, what, what was interesting that an aha that kind of popped out to me was when cities were first electrifying meaning they were getting their first street lights and things like that. What was interesting is private industry really led that change. And GE, Westinghouse, and others had their own systems. And it was really a quality of place. And they would finance it. And that's how GE got into financing, was financing these purchases for these towns to be the first town in southeastern Pennsylvania to be electrified. And it was this big quality of place initiative. That's what we would call it today. Right, where these communities want were signing up left and right to be electrified. They wanted to be the first one and you know, whatever to be electrified town because they saw it as a quality of place initiative, being on the forefront, innovative, you know, kind of getting their community out of the dark ages. Right. And now there was of course there was resistance, right? There was probably the same crazy newsletters and articles in eighteen ninety three about electric power causes people to grow a third arm and you know, whatever, right? So there there was it wasn't all rosy. But I think about it is interesting as we talk about some of these structural inefficiencies and just being in a, a society where you know, we have separation of powers. We have a society that has different levels of authority and, and governance. And we've definitely drifted more towards trusting local over federal government as it plays a role directly in our lives. I wonder, is maybe public not the answer? Where we should be looking for is private industry to, to deliver that product that helps gain more momentum. I know you guys are working with a lot of these enterprises but most people, these aren't household names at this point, right? Well, I will say, I'll let Steve go, but I will say even just within the last month or so, there was a kind of an open letter that was issued by some large corporates. I think Coca-Cola, maybe Walmart, you know, some really large corporates saying, you know, basically saying to the entire ecosystem. So we're basically saying to utility operators, to grid operators and to, you know, the development, renewable development community openly saying we need you all to figure out how to work more, to, how to, how to create, how to <laughs> yeah. create more figure green, it out, guys. Green, green energy, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so to your point, I think they are starting to use their voice. You know, from a, from a pure corporate side, not the developers themselves, but the corporate, you know, users and consumers of that energy, saying, guys, you know, collectively, we need you all to figure this out to create more green energy. We need to buy it. We want to buy it. You got to get it on the grid. Yeah, I, I do see that as playing a role, Jacob. I, I still think a fundamental difference between this scenario and the one that you talked about previously, Andrew, is is that was driven by demand and, mm. and really economics. Right. And, and this, you and it's a huge lifestyle here. benefit too for it's people, huge right? Lifestyle benefit. This we're talking about. We're talking about a large corporate level saying yeah. we want more of this, knowing that it's currently more expensive. 
So our point. system is set up to deliver the best goods and services in the cheapest way. Right. And this is something where as a society, we're saying we have to do this for other reasons that are outside mm. of what that system is designed for. That's a good point. And, and I think that's a challenge because you've got, you've got companies, you've got communities, you've got government saying we want more of this. How do we get it? How do we get it? The only answer right now is we pour federal dollars into it. Right. Right. And even those federal dollars, we talk about the federal dollars pouring into this huge dollars through the tax credits that are available and the tax credit equity that make these projects viable. But when you talk about decisions being made on a local level, do those dollars get to those local communities that are now putting those things in place that maybe they have resistance to from Mm -hmm. their residents? I mean, most of those dollars are needed right now just to make those projects viable. Now, you know, long term, if we have if we have top level down requiring traditional power sources to go offline, okay, now these become more competitive potentially, mm-hmm. but we're also raising the cost structure of everything. Right. So I think that's it's very, very difficult. One thing I would say is when we talk about those local decisions being made, I'm dealing with this a lot right now. So specifically in Missouri, there's a lot of planned solar in Missouri. But real real quick example, they just last summer, the Supreme Court shot down a law that said that had been around since I think 2013 that exempted solar generation facilities from taxation. They said, you know what, that's not that 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 doesn't work. So they shot it down. They said it's unconstitutional in the state. And now you have all these developments. Now they're up. Now they're in flux, and they don't even know how they're going to assess this. They don't know how it's going to be taxed. Right. And you're, we're literally cutting deals between communities and developers. What are you going to pay us? Yeah, I mean. It's, it's that simple. We're going to take it off the tax roll so we don't have to worry about it. What are you going to pay us? And, and no one knows. It's, it's kind of a staring contest because <laughs> there's only so much these developments can pay and be viable. The communities don't – they don't have the insight into those financials, so they don't know what's real and what's not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, they want to get something from it because they have to sell it yeah. to their communities where they have resistance to it. So it – but there's there's really there's very little in terms of, of structure in terms of what are we working with here and a lot of this boils down to how are those dollars that start on the federal level flowing down to right. a community level and benefiting the communities where these projects are going to sit and right now that's being done in a very disorganized fashion yeah. is it possible those dollars will flow down yes but but how is that happening there's not a direct route to it and again this isn't new right you brought it up with electricity. I know, yeah. I know it was true with the the, the national interstate system Correct. too, right? Yeah, there were, there were communities that were like, keep that thing away from us. We don't want the interstate running through our community, right? And now you fast forward to 2023. <laughs> that was a dumb decision. 2023, <laughs> like, There's a lot of towns that are like, oh, crap. Right. That 50 yeah. years ago, we maybe should have a little more forethought. Right, right. And, and so I think this situation is not all that dissimilar, right, where – the process it will get figured out, right? The interstate system eventually got figured out. It went around some communities that probably regret that today. But at, at the end of the day, the system got built, right? And I think that will happen with these renewables. I don't necessarily think, you know, there's some states that are toying around with if the locals kind of can't figure it out, we're yeah. going to take that away from them. Right. At some point, you go, okay, guys, I don't think mom that's and dad the, are coming that, in. Yeah. I don't think that's the best answer because I don't. I, I do. I am a believer in local control, but one way or another, it's going to get figured out, right? And so, I think the reality is where that dust settles, in my opinion, is going to have an impact on corporate location decisions in the future, right? Because right. again, we just talked about you know Coca Cola and some of these other big companies saying you know we we demand this or we we're basically demanding that you supply this to us. You know, as companies look where to locate in the future, that is going to be part of their decision making in certain states that are late to the game don't have their stuff together today, I think it's going to hurt them because some companies are going to say, look, you either can deliver what we need or you can. If you can't, we're going to have to go look elsewhere, right? Yeah. Well, and the thing that, and Paige brought up a really good point. I mean, I think the not only are the consumers demanding it, investors are demanding it, right? right? These are institutions. These are pension funds. They have, you know, everyone has a boss. I always joked, (laughs) no one's without a boss. And at the end of the day, we see, at least from my perspective, working with big corporates, you know, day in and day out, the ESG demands that are coming from shareholders, big institutional owners that have certain certain rules that they got to follow and investors themselves that are saying, you got to do this. I see the demand far outstrips what's feasible and possible in the short term. And then on top of it, you throw in compounded you know, pressure from consumers as well as their own employees that are saying, we need to do better. Yeah. Right. You know, and this is really something I see 
in my particular kind of case with this next generation of workers, right? Uh, the, the, they're the Gen Z, right? Gen Z. I don't know. I think so. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it's Gen Z. <laughs> if it's not, sorry. Um, <laughs> Gen Z people, you know, in general, and I'm not trying to generalize at all. Right. But I'm just saying in general, what I've noticed is they are in like most young people, right? Winston Churchill has that, you know, famous quote where if you're, if you're not a bleeding heart liberal at 22 and you're not a staunch conservative by 40, you either had no heart or no head. Right. But you know, when you're younger, you know, issues matter. But in general, I see them being much more in tune with issues, much more concerned about how their values align with the enterprise or organization they're working for and really being vocal and demanding that, right? And investors are doing the same thing because mm-hmm. a lot of times there's a lot of money out there that's sovereign wealth and they're own constituent, right? And so it's, it's interesting to see that that feels like that's moved really rapidly in comparison to what's actually happened on the ground. And at some point, rubber is going to meet the road, as, as you guys pointed out. All right. So last question before we wrap today. What do you think, you know, we know the economic toolbox. We've talked a lot about it at uh, Economic Development Toolbox on this show. What, what does the future look like? What types of new tools or new ways that communities need to start looking at and developing tools to address some of these big picture issues we discussed today? How do they need to re, because I think you guys mentioned it takes three years sometimes to go from, we need to change this to it actually changing, but we're living in a society that's changing quicker than that pace, right? So how do we need to think about our tools differently to address some of these challenges and maybe invent new ones? Yeah, I, I would say before even a state even starts to think about their economic development toolbox in, in the mid to long term, they need to look at their tax structure. Um, and make sure their tax structure is aligned uh, for for what we talk about for 21st century investment um, for these types of projects. So, so the types of revenues that you're generating from a 20th century facility versus a 21st century facility, does your tax structure still work for that? Is your tax structure still equitable in terms of, of you want a sustainable facility, but you also need to fund the goods and services that are going to provide for the quality of place for the people that that facility needs to live there? I think those those need to be looked at because a facility like we talked about earlier that's a million square feet with massive investment but almost no employees, the tax impact of that is significantly different than the tax impact of a facility that, that maybe had less equipment and had 1,000 employees in it. So I think states need to start from that point mm-hmm. and, and, and determine is our tax structure a 21st century or 22nd century moving forward tax structure. And, and how do we continue to evolve that so that we are positioned? And that's what companies look at even before they look at incentives. I mean, incentives are what – that's the toolkit that's used to level the playing field. That's the right. toolkit that, that's used to win a close project. If you are way off base or even if you go too far the other direction and now you've, you've not adjusted and you can't produce enough revenue to provide the quality of place – uh, to, to fund what you need funded. So I would start, Andrew, with that first question mm-hmm. of, of, of what do the tax structures look like? Yeah. What's a 21st century new economy 2035 tax structure look like? Once you know that, I think that informs the incentive discussion a lot. Right. Because you're not using those tools to make up for inefficiencies in your own tax code. You're fundamentally changing that in a more permanent way, the actual stru- yeah. tax structure, so to speak, to address that. Jacob, what do you think? Yeah, a few comments. One, one would be around real estate, and we've we've already seen this over the last you know five or so years. Economic development policy kind of being more engaged in real estate. I think that will continue, especially on the housing front, mm-hmm. um, because as we've talked about, the pressure on labor. You know, there's really an arms race out there for talent. You know, where those people live and where you know where they can be accessed by employers. I think you'll continue to see states and, and communities across the country continue to invest in housing for you know at least five more years maybe maybe another decade but the last point I would make on this is you know it's really technology to me it's around technology and I've always been an advocate of as a state or as a community you want to have the best latest technology operating in your community right and whether that means there's new jobs attached to it or not to me that's less relevant if you have a company that's not continually investing in you know the latest technology, Eventually, sooner than later, that that company's obsolete, right? So, craft policies that encourage and promote companies to adopt and put put the new technology in your community first, right? 
whether that's a new company or an existing company, you know, whether it's, you know, the way you approach property taxes structurally, whether it's the way you approach things like sales tax, those kind of tools do have an impact on where, where companies deploy assets. And, and, and as a community, you got to have that, the newest technology. You want to be on the leading edge of that because then you're always relevant, right? That plant, that facility, whatever that operation is, it's always relevant in the corporate structure and it's relevant in the economy. Because there's winners and losers in that, right? Because some plants, they just stop investing and eventually that plant just goes away, right? So I think both structural and incentive policies around specific technology investment is is really critical. That's interesting. And there was one other question, Paige. You you brought this up. You actually texted me. I think this is interesting. Well, because I didn't know if we wanted to go there. (laughs) Well, we can go there, right? We we control control the mic. Uh, That's true. So ask your question. Well, about the power, the same conversation could be had about legalizing marijuana, which states are doing it sure, versus right. which states are resistant to right. it. and Or other new dollars. industries in general, yeah. right, that are regulated today or, or you know, marijuana is a great example of that. But there's new industries on the horizon that, you know, with new materials, new types of things that we don't even know that are around the corner. And so I guess, Paige, I think your question is really der- derivative of like, Hey, like, how do we, like, how do we look at something like that? Is that a missed opportunity? Right. If, if you're not with it early on and embracing some of these things that it seems at some point marijuana legalization will happen. Now it's got to happen at a federal level, certainly. And that could take another 10 years (laughs) or more, but you know, things like that, where there's certain states that are saying, Hey, we're not going to, we're taking it off the books and you can grow. And, and there's a whole industry in some states cropping up around that. That's creating new economic opportunities in some states, Indiana being one of them, they're missing out on that. Right. I mean, I would say in general, I think it ties into the general theme of a lot of what we've been talking about. And that's communities and states that are willing to kind of pursue new growth areas earlier Reap benefits, right? right? You know, right. whether it's you know electrification or the interstate system or energy or, or or pot, right? I mean, I don't think we can sit here and say, well, those things are right for every community in every state. I think that that process has to play itself out, right? But I think the early adopters, just like in the private sector, right? The early adopters, there is a window of opportunity that is not available to people that come on later, right? Right. Early early market entry entrance, you know, creates advantages and you know, frankly, financial opportunity. I think that's true on these kind of policy and social issues. That's my take. I just want to say, who would have thought 15 years ago we would be talking about the economy of the future, (laughs) talking about automation, artificial intelligence, and pot? Right. I wouldn't. Yeah. I wouldn't have put those three things together 15 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, that's that's the beauty of the future. We don't know what's coming next. You but know. I think it's that's a little the, scary. I think that's the underlying message, though, right? Like both private sector and public sector, those that are willing to kind of embrace that uncertainty and be smart about pursuing those new opportunities, even though they're a little undefined and mm-hmm. uncertain. I think that's where you kind of get the biggest win sometimes. Well, and I think Steve, to your point too on tax structure, right? I mean, there's been a couple examples of this with states going this is a huge opportunity to tax this type of product, marijuana being one of them. And it can do a lot of amazing things. We know there's this huge demand for it right now in, in state like Indiana, it's an illicit market. So the government gets no take, right? Of the, the guy selling, you know, s- selling pot out of his apartment, zero revenue currently, right? You don't in think fact, he reports that? I don't think he, I, I would highly suspect it's not in his TurboTax account. You know, his, he's not self-reporting that income. And I think about that. We talk about quality of place. We talk about ESG investments that sometimes it's hard to get that, you know, there's federal dollars for some of these things coming down, but there's still gaps. How do we make sure it goes to communities? How do we make sure communities are better armed? Is are things, and I'm not saying pot in particular, I'm not asking anyone to take a position on that here, but I'm saying something like marijuana, where it creates a new arm of the tax structure that creates a new revenue source for a state or local government that can be put to good use, right? It could, we could say the same thing about gambling, Right. There's obviously been a huge growth in that space. We haven't even talked about that. That's another thing I'm sure we could do a whole podcast on. But 
I just think about some of those new industries that historically had been prohibited by law that we've started relaxing our societal attitude. And in, in return, the laws have been relaxed around it. That for some states that sit there and go, you know what, we're going after this and we're going to tax it and we're going to use that to fund X, Y, and Z. Is, is that an opportunity that more state houses aren't taking advantage of or thinking about in that way? Well, my, my observation would be pot and renewable energy specifically are it's true green energy. It's, it's all green. <laughs> I think that's what made me think about it. I was like, oh, green energy. Okay. Green dollars. Pot is like anti-energy though, right? It makes you tired. Yeah, I guess. Well, it kind I of. I don't know. Allegedly. Allegedly. No, but so, so where my head's at on both of those two specific items though, is there's so much economic activity that has happened in the way that the world has evolved over the last really 50 years, right? Where large portions of the world and specifically large portions of the U S have been kind of left behind. Right. Right. And it really, it goes back to the stuff we were talking about interstate, right? That, that forced areas to grow and other to, and really pull from other areas. Right. So today, right. if you don't have access to the inter- direct access to the interstate, your economic opportunity is pretty limited electrification too because what fall yeah. electric electrification communications right yeah. so mm-hmm. fiber right so those places are disconnected from the internet yeah. and they have limited fiber access right where does pot and where does renewables grow in those areas yes. right right. <laughs> right you've got big tracts of land right so you could you know pots an agricultural commodity and then renewables need lots of open space right and so to me i look at it and go wow these communities that haven't really had much of a shot for decades, decades, right? Yeah. Decades to create, you know, tax revenue, like you were talking about. To me, that's the main driver. All of a sudden, these these communities have been barely hanging on. They can barely fund their fire and police, right? They right. can barely fund their schools. They have really no quality of life to speak of. All of a sudden, just in those two specific areas, renewables and marijuana, you've got opportunity for these communities. And I get mm-hmm. the resistance. Like mm-hmm. it's new. It's, they don't understand it. The people that live there don't necessarily understand it, but from kind of a, a fiscal impact, there's very few opportunities that communities have to genuinely create new revenue. And those are two of them. Yeah. Andrew package it up. Let's go sell it. I'm, <laughs> no, seriously. I, I really think, you know, we're kind of onto something here. And I think the, 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 you know, the final message is if you're not embracing the, the, at the front of the curve of change, you're going to, you're going to miss opportunities down the road. And in a world where that it's iterating in such a faster, because one of the other things you pointed out was trying to make sense of like, well, what happens if in 10 years, this is already obsolete? Honestly, I almost guarantee it, right? If you're putting in major charging kind of, I call them truck stops for electric trucks, right? You're putting those in they will be obsolete in 10 years. Like there's just no way around it. The charging technology is going to get better or it's going to get replaced by a better technology. For all we know, there's going to be cold fusion trucks at some point, right? That are running on mini nuclear reactors that are powering it fully green. Don't even need to charge. You just put a little more uranium in and you're good. To, I, don't, I don't even know if you use uranium. It could be plutonium. <laughs> I'm not sure. I didn't do very well in high school chemistry. So, so forgive me scientists that listen to the podcast. But I, I think that's the next thing I just think about. And I'm Paige knows that I'm extremely impatient mm-hmm. about everything. Mm-hmm. I want like now, 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 now. And that's, that's, I guess maybe it's been thing I've been successful and probably drives her up the wall. Um, but I, I just think about that and I go, holy cow, for the example, Jacob, you just brought up about these communities and we've all driven through them. We all know them. Some people have grown up in them that are stuck 50 years ago that have, you know, declining populations, populations with poor health outcomes, no quality of place, mate, little main streets that are literally crumbling, right? Education, education that is far, you know, far lacking national standards, right? And you go, how do you get out of this vortex? You know, this doldrum, this, this trap, right? Maybe some of these things. And I've always been surprised that we haven't seen more grassroots, root support for this from those communities, because I think those could be major tools of opportunity that get them to turn around their trajectory. I don't know. I agree. We'll have to see. All right, guys, any other final thoughts or predictions before we wrap up today? Chiefs lose (laughs) next year. (laughs) No way. I'd say two and 15. 
Oh, Two and fifteen, absolute no. impossible. Uh, Jacob, for all our listeners, Chiefs Super Bowl champion, Chiefs fan, twenty twenty four. You gonna you gonna go two peat yeah. it? Yeah, prediction. Biggest drop in NFL history. <laughs> God to goat overnight. Absolutely. <laughs> we'll have to see. We'll have to monitor it. Jacob, Steve, thank you guys for coming on Urban Foundry. This has been an absolute blast. I'm all jazzed up right now. To be honest, this is a lot of fun. Paige, how about you? Oh, ready to go. You ready to go into the weekend? Oh yeah. All right. All right. Well, thank you guys. Appreciate your time. Thank you to all of our Urban Foundry listeners, and we'll talk to you soon. If you like what you heard, please hit subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And don't forget to like or follow us on LinkedIn and YouTube at Urban Foundry Podcast.